Well, I hope everybody by now uh, realizes that nonviolent communication is not about communication. I mean, a little bit of it, a tiny little piece of it. Uh, nonviolent communication is a, an integration of several things of which communication is just a little part. And nonviolent communication is certainly not the four steps. The more we think of it as uh, mechanically observation, feelings, needs, requests, the harder it's going to be to live nonviolent communication. So what is it? That's the hardest question for me to answer about the process, what it is. Because it's much easier to say what it isn't. It isn't communication, just communication. Communication is a part. Uh, for me, the most important part of it is uh, the consciousness of what it's trying to serve, its purpose. Uh, what it is designed to do, whatever it is. So for me, the most important part of it is an intention. Uh, some people in English, instead of intention, would probably use the word the spirituality that it's designed to serve. I'm reluctant to use uh, the word spirituality since some people have that associated with some pretty violent concepts. So whether we want to call it intention, purpose, spirituality, that for me is the most important component of what I mean by nonviolent communication. And unless that consciousness is really what is guiding us, whatever comes out would not be what I would probably call nonviolent communication. So what is that purpose or intention? To create a certain quality of connection with ourself and with other people. To create a connection that allows compassionate giving and receiving to take place naturally. So it's all about compassionate giving and receiving. How do we connect with ourselves and others so that that takes place naturally? Now, what do I mean by compassionate giving and receiving? First of all, it's easy to say what it isn't. It means not doing anything out of obligation. Don't do anything because you should. Because it's the right thing to do. Because you feel obligated to do it. Life's too short to do anything out of duty or obligation. What it doesn't involve, as far as I'm concerned, is doing anything for rewards. Just yesterday, I read uh, a recent study quoted by Elfie Cohn, whose book, Punished by Rewards, I, I like very much. 
and it showed uh, research showing that uh, students in school who learn for rewards are far less likely to maintain and continue the learning. And uh, so anything we do for rewards is a tragic use of our human energy. And of course, never do anything to avoid punishment. Don't do anything to avoid criticism. Don't do anything to get praise and compliments. So that's what I would suggest not doing. Any question about that so far? So nonviolent communication is designed to show us a way in which we can connect with ourselves and others so that we operate out of a different energy than that created by rewards, punishment, criticism, praise, duty, obligation. So what is compassionate giving and receiving? First, it's where you can't tell the giver from the receiver. It's hard to use the word giver when it's compassionate giving because the giver is receiving, is doing this to meet their own needs. Now, as radical as that sounds, that nonviolent communication is designed to have us give always when we're just doing it to meet our own needs. It sounds pretty radical, and if you have certain ears on it, can sound selfish, except I don't think human beings ever do anything for any other reason. I doubt that anybody in this room has ever done something for somebody else. I believe that human beings are like every other form of life. Every action that's taken by something alive is to serve its life. It's only because we've been educated for the last seven or 8,000 years to live within domination structures that we have been educated in a most unnatural way. Instead of like every other form of life, to get our needs fulfilled, we have been educated to associate our needs with selfishness, neediness. Needs are seen as kind of immature, dependent, weak. Just about everything negative that you can associate something with, needs have been associated with. Because the structures we have created to live with under and on our planet require people being educated to be nice, dead people. And what you must program them to believe is that our job is to do that which our superiors define as right so that we can be rewarded. If we do that while we are alive, then when we're dead, we go to this place called heaven. If we fail at that game of obeying authority, we go to the other place called Detroit. <laughs> I mean hell, hell. Growing up in Detroit, I get those two places mixed up. <laughs> 
So nonviolent communication is designed to help us to meet our own needs. And one of our strongest needs, according to Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist, the strongest need is a need for meaning, purpose. And uh, however we define that, I believe it boils down to serving life that our strongest need is to find a way to serve life. So we never do anything for others. If we're really doing it out of a conscious energy, we're doing it to meet our need to enrich life. There's nothing we like better than to enrich life unless we think we're being forced to do it. Unless we think somebody's going to criticize or blame us if we don't do it, or that they're going to withhold their love, then any action takes the joy out of it. But when we're conscious that we really never do anything except to meet our own needs, that's a very important start of nonviolent communication to help us with that, to realize that we never do anything for others, only to meet our own needs. Any questions about that? So, uh, I developed nonviolent communication because I could see that the language that I learned and the way of using power uh, and the thinking that I was educated to do, those three things, uh, thinking, language, and the use of power, and those three go together. They're integrated. Thinking, language, use of power. I saw that the way I was educated to think, the language that I was given to think with, and the use of power, I saw they did not serve that consciousness of living my life to meet my needs and to meet my needs compassionately and to connect with others so that we can give and receive compassionately. I saw the language, the thinking, the use of power did not serve that. For example, my brain was programmed with a very tragic way to give people language. It involved the use of this very dangerous phenomenon called the verb to be. I hope your brain wasn't programmed that way. If you have the verb to be in your head, you will think that some things a person does are right. And some things they do is wrong. You will think there's such a thing as normal people and abnormal people. You will think there's such a thing as attractive people and ugly people. Do any of you have any of those words in your head? <laughs> you do. Let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of them. So uh, let's do a little imagination. Let's imagine that somebody has done a, a brain scan computerized research in your brain. And they see that they have tabulated the word that you have most used in your life to judge another person when they have done something you don't like. Write that down. Write down what is the, the thing that if you could think that you have been 
most inclined to judge people when they do something you don't like. Marshall, yeah. can you explain what you I didn't really get it. Yeah, if we had somehow tabula you know, put a program in your brain to see the thinking or or verbalization of how you are likely to judge people that do something you don't like. Just what would be, there might be a many of them, but what's just one? Pick one out of there of how you judge, whether you're likely to judge somebody who does something you don't like. Would you call them? Would you call them? Or if you said it out loud, or what would, in your thing, in your brain, what would you think they are? Judgments. Judgments of people. Yeah. So let's hear a few of these so we can see how our brains <laughs> have been programmed. Selfish. Selfish. Ignorant. Ignorant. Stupid. Wrong. Wrong. Indifferent. Indifferent. Incompetent. Incompetent. Mm. Needy. Needy. Needy means we need a lot of attention, perhaps. Needy is a variation on the word T-O-O. -O. See, that's an important word to brainwash people with. See, that means the T-O-O -O means some things are just right, but some things are too much and too little. So... We have certain words that abbreviate just about all of these other words, like the word T-O-O. -O. Uh, it means a person has done too much of something or too little of something. But it means there's a just right way to do it. Lazy. Pardon? Lazy. Lazy, yes. <laughs> Pardon? Dominant. Dominant. Domineering, we domineering. Okay, dominant, domineering. I don't use the words, uh, I have a sentence. A sentence. Sometimes I say it loud, but it, I can only say it in German. Yeah? If I feel anger and if I feel pain, I say, licking too much. <laughs> I want to learn this. Uh, seems people like it very much. I don't know. She's going she's gonna to teach us. Can somebody translate? Kiss my ass. Kiss my ass. It's a variation on that. What's the literal t word? Says? Lick my ass. Lick my ass. Oh, the only thing is in English that would be dangerous because to lick somebody means to beat them. <laughs> so be careful in Eng you know in translating that into English. Sometimes I say it. Yeah. I'll be suggesting throughout our time together that even if we think these words, we pay dearly for it. Mm -hmm. For every second we are thinking there is such a thing as selfish, ignorant, stupid, wrong, indifferent, incompetent, needy, lazy, domineering. We pay dearly for it. Our body pays for it. Our spirit pays for it. To live in a world where we think there are such things is a world that, for me, is not much fun. Yeah. 
I understand uh, what you want to say, but I can't share your uh, analysis. You are blaming the word to be. Cogito ergo sum, I think that's the reason that I am, said a philosopher sometimes ago. And the meaning of to be is quite different from the adjective. So I think you blame the adjectives and not the word to be. So we want to say then uh, it's not the verb to be, it's words. We'll just say words like selfish and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm quoting, I was quoting uh, Alfred Korzybski and other semanticists to uh, use the phrase that the verb to be is what they're trying to replace. But I see they're, they're talking about it when it's followed by these adjectives. Any other words we can add to our language yeah. of how we've been programmed? Pardon? Uncaring. Uncaring. Liar. Liar. Sensitive. Sensitive. What's your problem? <laughs> so notice how you you give us a a question, but my experience is. Those questions, when they're asked with a certain tone of voice, you know the person already has the answer to it. <laughs> it means when they say, why did you do this? You know already the answer is because you're selfish, ignorant, stupid, wrong, indifferent, incompetent, needy, lazy, domineering, uncaring, liar, sensitive. <laughs> but the question is just an abbreviated way of asking the question. I'm sure those, some of you have heard me tell about uh, a young man that taught me something, a nine-year-old guy. I was waiting in a school that he was attending for the school to be over. I was going to be working with the teachers. And here this nine-year-old guy comes walking down the hall, and a teacher comes running out of the room, and she says, Why are you out in the hall? Now, this young guy, he knows how to handle somebody that asks you that kind of question. See, he knows there's always a judgment behind it. The question is just an indirect way of saying you're bad. So he really taught me how to handle somebody asking that kind of question. Here was his response. Silence. He knows never answer such a question without a lawyer. <laughs> so this teacher, though, uh, was rather persistent on getting an answer to her question. She said, why are you out in the hall? Silence. So I like how he taught me how to deal with questions where you can sense by the tone of voice that behind it is just the person has already decided you are these things. Okay, so now uh, nonviolent communication uh, tries to keep our focus. 
not on this game of what does authority think is right, which is why we learn this language. You see, this is a language of domination. If you want to persist in a culture that has people called superiors who have the right to control those below them, you need this kind of language because it's part of retributive justice. So how do we translate that word into French and German, retributive? I don't get it in English either. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the word deserve. It's all about the word deserve. It implies that if you do the right thing, the unselfish, the intelligent, the, uh, the, the competent, the, all of these positive parts. If you do, if you get judged positively, you deserve reward. But if you do these things, oh my goodness, you deserve to suffer. Now, how much do you deserve? You see, this is one of the problems of superior. To determine how much you deserve to suffer if you do these things. And then you meet out the suffering in various forms. Physical suffering. So how, how severe a beating you deserve for an action is determined by the superiors called teachers, parents, uh, presidents, whatever. See, they determine how much you deserve to suffer if it's a physical suffering. But if they really want you to suffer, uh, physical is too easy to get over. So we have to know how much spiritual suffering you deserve. And then we use shame. We want, if you really want to be violent to people, don't hit them. Use shame. Make them feel ashamed of what they are. And that's the purpose of this language, you see. If you're these things, ugh, it's disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself. Or another one, guilt. See, if you want to really be violent, you in your use of power, Use power over people. Power over is based on physical suffering that you can create for them if they don't do what you want. Or spiritual suffering. Get them to feel guilty or shameful for what they have done. So that's the use of power that uh, most people, the vast majority in fact on our planet, have been taught to use. Power over. Nonviolent communication is designed to increase our power with people, not over them. Power with people means we never want to do anything and people to do anything unless they consciously choose to do it. And we want their only reason for choosing to do it is they see how it will meet their needs. And we want to be sure they never do it out of guilt, shame, 
or fear of some other kind of punishment. Because if we would see how much we pay for every criticism we make, we would never use this language. Ooh. To whatever degree a person has heard any of these words coming from you, oh my goodness, if we could measure how much we pay for it, that would quickly get us to radically change our consciousness and our language. See, to whatever degree a child of mine associates me of calling them lazy, they don't do what I want. To whatever degree people associate us with the use of criticism, punishment, guilt, shame, etc., takes the joy out of compassionately giving. It blocks it. How can you get to compassionate giving when you have to fear this? Or you associate this person and what they're going to do to you if you don't do for them what they want. It takes all the joy out of giving. And boy, we can't afford to give that up. So we certainly never want to use any language that implies wrongness of people. Okay. So... To get out of that has helped me to be conscious that every one of these judgments that implies wrongness of some kind or another is a tragic, suicidal expression of an unmet need. Yeah, every word that implies wrongness. So every one of these words, anytime a person says selfish, ignorant, stupid, wrong, indifferent, etc. Freedom fighter, terrorist. Every word that implies wrongness is a tragic, tragic, suicidal expression of an unmet need. Imagine a person comes to your country. They don't know any of your language. Okay? And you decide to be totally brutal and violent to this person. And you say to this person who knows none of your language, you know, in our culture, we have a special word that you use that when you are the most desperate and need nurturing and care. I'm going to show you this. We say this in our culture, and this will get everybody to respond compassionately to you. Now, right? This person's going to really want to know. Isn't that a wonderful culture? That you just say this one word and, and when you're the most needy. So you say to the person, when you're really hurting, go to another person and say this. Asshole! <laughs> Wouldn't that be a nasty trick to play on somebody? But it's been played on us. If you have any of those words in your head, that's the same thing. It's like, it means the need of yours isn't getting met. And when you use language like this, two things are mo the most likely to happen. The person will do it, whatever you want, and you will pay for it. But there's also a high possibility that if you say this, you won't get it because what you see is what you get. For example, if you think there is such a thing as being lazy and you tell a child of yours, you're lazy, you didn't clean up your room. 
to think that that's going to get the child to enjoy contributing to whatever need of yours would be met by the, the bed being made or the things being picked up. Not very likely to get it done for reasons you won't be sorry for later. So when I work in industry, I know they've got things they need to get done. So in industry, I define a training this way. Getting, what, getting production for reasons you don't have to pay for later. And I use the same language with parents and teachers. Getting what you want for reasons you don't have to pay for later. Yes, we certainly would like people to do certain things that would contribute to our well-being. But we want to be sure that we never use any language that implies wrongness. And we want to be sure we don't use any language that implies rightness. Because that's perpetuating the game that's been played on our planet that contributes to the violence. So, all of these words, in, in the context that they're used, really means that the speaker's needs have not been met. And tragically, this is the only way they've been educated to express their needs. So, nonviolent communication is the language of life. It's based on two questions. And it says, if we know how to answer these two questions well, and here are these two questions from other people being answered. We'll enjoy human beings a lot more. They'll enjoy us a lot more. And we'll have peace and harmony in our relationships. If we keep our consciousness focused on these two questions. Question number one. What's alive in, in us? What's alive? What's alive? Yeah. It's the most asked question on our planet because it's the most natural question. It's something that until we've been brainwashed, we obviously want to know. But it's seldom expressed that way. In the culture I grew up in, you didn't say to somebody, what's alive in you? You say, how are you? Como talibu? Como esta usted? Vigates. In... Uh, Rwanda, Amakuru, everywhere. It's a natural question. So we're taught to ask the question, but it's a social ritual. We're not taught to really answer it because we haven't been given a language of life. So we all know the answer to it. How are you? Fine. How are you? So that's a social nicety. But It's tragic to make something so important into a social nicety. It's critical. The first thing we need to do is give people, if we're going to use language, a language of life. To say what's alive. What is alive in you? So that's question number one. And question number two. What would make... Yeah, yeah sure. It's also uh, when we uh, answer it in an almost ignorant way, we also think that uh, the question is not meant. Oh, yeah. We, we assume it's a social nicety. But what I'm saying is it's a critical question. It's critical to know what's alive in each other. 
if we're really conscious, we want to know what's alive because we want to contribute to life. We want to make sure that life is being nurtured. That's the good life, when we make sure that everybody's needs are being nurtured. We don't create economic systems where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Like we have now, we measure it. It's successful. Our economics is called successful. Okay, okay, okay. 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 That's this way of telling me I'm talking too much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so I will get them more involved. In <laughs> you turned it on. No, she usually doesn't use it. She go, usually goes like this. <laughs> so, these two questions. What's alive in you? And what would make life more wonderful? Now... No words can describe for me what's alive. What's alive? Because what's alive, I believe, is a divine energy. I think life is evidence of a divine energy. So, how do you describe divine energy that's within each of us? Um, the best I've learned how to put it into words is... What am I feeling? What am I needing? But it doesn't capture the beauty of life. But I don't know better words for capturing the beauty of life. I'm just grateful to Alfred Korzybski, the father of general semantics, when he says that uh, the map is never the territory. Words never really describe what we're talking about. They're just a map. And the more profoundly beautiful something is, the less the map does the trick. And to me, divine energy coming through human beings, what words can describe it? The best map I've found are needs. What is a person's needs? And related to needs are feelings. Are feelings a manifestation of what's happening to our needs? When the needs are being fulfilled, we feel what we call pleasureful feelings. So the best I've learned, if I'm going to use words to describe the beauty of divine energy coming through people, are feelings and needs. And then, related to that question, is the other. What would make life more wonderful? So 
another way of saying that, what would meet these needs? So the language I've pulled together, which I've labeled nonviolent communication, is the best language that I've learned for capturing those two questions. Capturing those two questions. Um, but I seldom speak that language formally. I seldom use the four components that I've found best capture that uh, technically. Observation, feelings, needs, requests. I'd say 90% of the time I speak idiomatically. For example, uh, this morning I was hungry and I had a need for some food. <coughs> and I would have appreciated uh, Valentina getting up and making some breakfast. So I said it in speak giraffe. So you're trying to starve me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, to me, the words aren't as important as the connection. If the connection works, then she would know what's alive in me and what would make life more wonderful for me. So that's really what I'm always trying to do, is connect in that way. And if I don't know the person too well, I may use more formally a language to make clear what's alive in me. And formally, the best way I've ever seen of doing it is clear observation and get at then the feelings and needs that are affected by that observation. And a request, and I found that all of the way I was trained to think in terms of rightness, wrongness, if I translate it into this language of life, I enjoy life a lot more, and it greatly increases the likelihood that other people and I will connect in a way where we enjoy contributing to each other's well-being. Can you give an example of that? Of, uh, so the, like, like you have this easy thing, you're hungry in the morning and... How would I have said it? Yeah, I mean, not by making your belly rumble, but... How I might have... Press that in a way that really fulfills your needs. The four steps, you mean? Four? I'm serious, I might say it. Are you trying to starve me? Well, the difference, the difference is, my wife has a warped mind. <laughs> warped, kind of. So, so yeah. So you're saying that your wife is a more normal person. So then I might say. Uh, I'm really uh, hungry right now and uh, have a need for some food. I probably wouldn't even say the need there. I'd probably say I'm really hungry right now. And I would guess that she could guess the need, whether I said it or not. Because uh, hunger usually is associated with a particular need. 
So I might uh, say, I'm really hungry right now. Would you uh, be comfortable making breakfast? Is that if you, if you need that second sentence. Which one? Request. Would you be to, to make the request? It depends. Now, I would hope that certainly if I was married to somebody, that we would have an agreement as part of the marriage vows. <laughs> Read our marriage vows, a little card. Get it out, get it out. Get out the card. This was, see... This is an agreement that, that we know that she's already lost it. <laughs> Shows how important it was to her. Okay, so this vow is, we vowed that any time we ask for anything, whatever it is, please make breakfast, it's an abbreviation for the following. In other words, we want the person to know that this always goes with any request. Please do as I request. Only, that's stressed in big letters, only. <laughs> if you can do it with a feeling of joy. And only if it will make your world more wonderful. Please do not do as I requested if you have any sense of duty or obligation. Please do not grant my request if you would be doing so out of fear of punishment or hope of reward. Can you give the only again? So the first, uh, you know, several months, uh, no matter what we asked, we would put that in there just so we would have it deeply ingrained. So I would say, please pass the salt at the dinner table, but only And then she would say, after I say that, I would say, but only if she would, she would want to be sure she heard me. And she would say, are you feeling unsalted and have a need for more flavor in your food? And would you like me to do it, pass it, if I am? So after we felt this had gotten in enough, now we can, you know do it in what we call idiomatic giraffe. Now, yeah? I have a question about your analysis about these uh, negative adjectives. Yeah. What's about the positive ones? Are Equally dangerous. <laughs> Maybe more so. Uh, for various reasons. Maybe more dangerous. First of all, they perpetuate the thinking. It's still that thinking, whether it's good or bad. And the example some of you may have heard me say, my daughter, until the time she was nine, it was amazing how everybody judged her in the same way. What a good girl. What a perfect little girl. 
Look, her brothers don't clean off the table and she cleans it up for them. What a good girl. I don't know how many times she heard that. Can you think of anything worse to be than a good girl? You can't have any needs of your own. You always have to do for other people. So I started to wake up when I started preaching about expressing gratitude in, in this vicious way of positive judgments. And I said, holy cow, I'm doing it all the time. You know. So I started to talk with my daughter about why I never hear her needs. and wanted her to stop being a good girl and really make sure that she was doing something that was to meet her needs. So I knew we were getting somewhere when I got a call from her school administrator one day. Dr. Rosenberg, would you come in, please? I'm afraid we have an unhappy girl here today. <laughs> what? My perfect little girl in trouble in school? So I go to the school administrator and I say, well, what's the problem? Marla came to school today dressed in blue jeans. I told her that isn't how young ladies dress. And she said, fuck off. <laughs> I wanted to celebrate, you know. My perfect little girl graduated into a real living being. Now, I couldn't get the administrator to celebrate this. No, to think there's such a thing as being normal is just as limiting as to think it's such a thing as abnormal. To think that you're attractive is just as uh, dehumanizing as to think you're unattractive. You're living in a world of that Rumi the poet, I like how Rumi the poet describes that world, whether it's positive judgments or negative judgments. Rumi says, there's a place beyond right and wrongdoing. I'll meet you there. Oh, that place is so much more fun to live in than that world of right and wrongdoing, where it's all about how you're judged by others. So I'll be forever grateful to four feelings that I have that tell me that I'm thinking in a way that I want to transform, <coughs> that I'm not living in that world that I want to live in. And so I'm so grateful Mother Nature put these four feelings in us human beings because they tell me that I'm not thinking in a way that is natural, that is a natural way of thinking. And I'm thinking in a way, in fact, that is contributing to violence on the planet. These four precious feelings are anger, depression, guilt, Shame. I can't think of four things that have helped me more to learn nonviolent communication than anger, depression, guilt, and shame. Because if you know you want to learn a foreign language, it very often uh, helps you to transfer, translate one language into the other. So uh, every time I feel one of those four feelings, it's a language lesson time. It gives me a chance to transform the violent thinking going on in me into a language of life. So let's do a little exercise on that. Let's think of uh, a mistake you made fairly recently. 
within the last year or so, maybe yesterday, but think of a mistake you made that in some way made life a lot different than you would have liked it to. Maybe it's something you said, maybe it's something you did, maybe you said it at home to your child, maybe you did something to somebody, whatever it is. Think of an action you took or didn't take uh, that we would put under the heading of a mistake. Okay, got that in mind? Now, I apologize to those of you who are perfect. Uh, you'll have to skip this exercise. But if you want to participate, uh, use your imagination. Just imagine you made a mistake, okay? But if even that's too hard for you to do, you might enjoy just sitting there feeling superior. <laughs> Whichever. Uh, but for those of you less than perfect, thinking of the mistake, I'd like you to think of uh, what you said to yourself when you saw that you made the mistake. This exercise I'll be having us do requires us to become conscious of how we speak to ourselves when we're less than perfect. And if you can't recall exactly what you said, I'm sure by now you have a pretty good idea of how you speak to yourself when you're less than perfect. So either remember or guess what you said to yourself. And let's hear a few of these so we see how you talk to yourself. Yeah. I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand it anymore. Can't stand it anymore. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? When will I learn? When will I learn? Self righteous. Self righteous. I'm a genetic jackal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an what kind a, a jackal? I'm a genetic jackal. And then what was the last part? That is advanced NBC. That's advanced NBC. Oh, I like that jackal. That's a... What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I assume the guilt. I assumed again, and is it accurate of me to predict that implicit in that is that's not a good thing? Because oh, uh, sometimes we abbreviate, you know, we don't put the actual judgment in there, but we know from the phrase that I did this again, that means it's wrong, somehow. Why do I, why do I always do that? Why do I always do that? Questions also do that. They are another way of implying some kind of wrongness. Isn't that accurate? Uh, why do I always do that? I'm a fake. I'm a fake. I should be more... I should be more of something. 
I found different uh, rational reason why it happened. I think. Pardon, I didn't hear. You. I, I find different uh, rational reason analyzed. I analyzed the situation. You analyze and it. Oh, it's maybe because of that and and. Uh, so you give yourself psychoanalysis. Yeah. Yeah. Psycho <laughs> yes. Yeah, I like that. I can always blame it on my parents. You know, whatever I do. <laughs> I'm a dictator. I'm a dictator. And it doesn't help if I think that I'm a democratic dictator. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dictator. This will put my promotion in danger. This will put my promotion in danger. About, uh, she is using this. She is using you, you judge the other person for your mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Let me write that down. I'll never figure it out. And, and what's the diagnosis behind that? I'm hopeless. Hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'm a hopeless case. I'm I am a, a destroyer. I'm a destroyer. I destroy something. I'm a destroyer. Okay, so now, uh, seeing that I was programmed uh, to think that way, um, I've been working hard to uh, transform that thinking into uh, a language of life. Because I think every one of those messages that I tell myself, if I see what I call the truth, it'll be a precious message and it will help me to learn without losing self-respect. So I want to, whenever I do make a mistake, I want to learn from it without losing self-respect. Uh, that's some language I use when I refer to this. Uh, other times I want, I would say it this way, I want to learn from my limitations without losing connection with the divine energy within myself. So, they both mean the same to me. Um, so, uh, for me, making mistakes can be very precious if I can learn from them without losing connection with the divine energy within myself. But when I use language like I've heard here, and it's certainly how I was programmed to think, uh, I don't experience myself at all as connected within with divine energy. Quite the opposite. So, whenever I have thinking like that going on, I found that my life gets transformed in a wonderful way when I can translate this into a language of life. A language of life. A language that gets me connected to the life in me that was not served by what I did. And, as I've said, more concretely, it means what need of mine was not met. But whenever I do use this word need, 
I like to associate it with divine energy because I believe that needs are evidence of divine energy. And that's pretty hard to get to that jump from the cultural association I have with needs, which are needy, weak, dependent, about everything negative. But in fact, I think that it's the most precious thing I can get in touch with, the life energy within me. Whether we want to call it the life energy, the divine energy, the best word I've found for it that I can use in English is need. It can connect me with most people. So I'm going to recommend the following exercise, that uh, you go into groups of four, and uh, for each person in this mistake, uh, help them to say, how would they have expressed this to themselves in need language? What would they have said to themselves to help them to see the need of theirs that wasn't met? in a way that would help them to stay conscious that this is divine energy, these needs. So how would that have been said, these messages, in that kind of language? How would we have said this to ourselves? Secondly, help the person empathize with the divine reasons they made the mistake. See, what we call a mistake simply means it was the best way we knew how at that moment to serve this divine energy within ourselves. Or if you don't like that word divine energy because we came out of very violent spiritual training, then to be conscious that what we call mistakes was the best way we knew how at that moment to meet a need of ours. So, help each person in the group after empathizing with themselves. What need of theirs were they trying to meet? Or didn't get met, rather. What need of theirs didn't get met by the action we're calling a mistake? How to put that into a language of life so the person doesn't think they did anything wrong or bad. Just and, and let's call this mourning. Mourning. See, that to me is a very important part of being alive, whether we're an animal or a human being, to mourn when life isn't being served. We don't want to be happy. We, if we felt happy when we weren't getting enough food, we'd starve to death. So we want to have some discomfort when a need isn't being met, but we want to do this in a natural way. That's what I call mourning. To see a need of ours was not met. Life wasn't served. So that was the first thing you'll help each person do. How, how would you have spoken to yourself to just be conscious of what need of yours wasn't met by doing and then, after you've helped the person to mourn, help them to engage in self-forgiveness. See, in giraffe land, in the land of nonviolent communication, 
forgiveness and empathy are the same thing. Because when we empathize, there's nothing to forgive. Forgiveness implies this old game of, uh, you know, uh, if you forgive, if you uh, confess your evilness to a, a saintly person and they're saintly, they will forgive you. And they, No, not that game. Not that game. Empathy and forgiveness are the same thing. When we see that what a person does, somebody does something to us that doesn't meet our needs. When we see the good reason why they did it. Good reason defined, it was the best they knew how to meet their need at that moment. That's forgiveness. When we see that that, that person did that for the same reason that every human being does everything they do. Everything that we human beings do is the best we know to do at that moment to meet our needs. So when we empathize with that, there are no bad guys. There are people who do things that don't meet our needs. Well, now here we're talking about ourselves. We did something that didn't meet our needs, but we don't want to see ourselves as something wrong with us for doing it. We want to see the good reason why we did it. Good reason defined as the best way we knew to meet a certain need. So help the person to say in a language that they resonate with something that captures what need they were trying to meet by doing this behavior we're calling a mistake. Now sometimes we will see that these two needs are the same. that we did something that didn't meet a need. Well, what need were we trying to meet by doing it? The very need that didn't get met. The strategy was just not a very effective strategy for meeting the need. But sometimes what we did was good to meet one need, but at the cost of another. So for each person, help them to see what need they were trying to meet by doing what they did. So then you will have helped each person to get clear how to mourn in this situation, mourn in terms of seeing the need that wasn't met, and how they would like to have said that to themselves differently than they did. How would that sound within the self if they had said that to themselves? And then help them to empathize with empathy with what need they were trying to meet. Any question about that exercise? Time. What time? Let's give each person about 10 minutes uh, for helping get those two things clear. <laughs> and that'll be 40 minutes. So what time is it? Let's get back together at uh, 11.30. So groups of four until 11.30, helping each person get those two needs clear. Okay, any questions come up uh, in your group that you'd like to raise?
Okay. Uh, let me give you a little help in developing a need vocabulary. Uh, this help, I give the credit for it to Manfred Max Neef. That last name is spelled M-A-X hyphen N-E-E-F. He is an economist from Chile. And if you go into his website, you can download a little booklet he has written called The Human Development Theory. And his whole economic system is based on human needs. So when, as an economist, you want to measure whether a, a economic system is effective, uh, he believes you must measure the degree to which everyone's needs are being met. But to do that, you have to get clear what are the needs that need to be met for us to have a peaceful, harmonious, healthy community. So he and his colleagues did a lot of work in trying to ask themselves, what are our needs? And they came up Manfred is his first name, M-A-N-F-R-E-D. And his last name is Max Neef. That's hyphenated. M-A-X hyphen N-E-E-F. And after research, they came up with nine needs that they decided to measure to see whether an economy was successful or not. They could measure the degree to which these needs were being met. And the first he calls sustenance, first need, sustenance. And I actually, in my way of thinking about needs, I would say that involves about four or five different needs. But he lumps them all in one. Then I would call them the way, instead of sustenance in my language, I would say the basic physical needs. Air, water, food, shelter, clothing, you know, the basic physical needs. His second need, safety, protection. Third need, love. Fourth need, understanding. I would prefer the word empathy, but his word is understanding. Next, creativity. Next, recreation. He includes in this play, rest. So recreation, play, rest. Next, he calls community. I prefer the German word, Geborgenheit. Warm nest would be another way I would say it in English. Warm nest. Warm community. Uh, you could see it that way, but he means different. He has a different way of measuring it. 
And then come two of the needs that I think are probably, uh, if we really measure to be fully human, to feel really human beings, these two needs are very important. And this would be autonomy. Look in the newspaper on any given day and see how many wars are going on almost daily around the world over this subject. Human beings do not want someone to come along and say, I have a right to control you. And yet, most teachers think it's their job to control students. Most managers think it's their job to control employees. So that's why you have wars in the schools between the teachers and the students. At work between the managers and the employees, at home between parents and children. You want to hear a, an autonomy war? Go down some neighborhood in the evening that has a lot of children in it and listen in on houses, and you'll hear autonomy wars going on. You'll hear a parent giving an order to a three year old Time to go to bed. Three year old. No! <laughs> autonomy war, you see. Parents think it's their job to make the children behave. Teachers think it's their job to make children behave. Managers think it's their job to make people behave. My children taught me how foolish that was. <laughs> the first thing they taught me, I couldn't make them do anything. All I could do is make them wish they had. And they told me any time I would do that, they would make me wish I hadn't made them wish they had. So, so once I got that, we didn't have the autonomy wars. And then that, that need that Viktor Frankl calls the most important human need from a standpoint of really being evolved as a human being, the need for meaning, the need for purpose. But of course, if you're educated in the way that most people are educated in, you get that need for meaning all mixed up with money. You get the need for meaning all mixed up with money. Or status. You think that your job title is, gets that need for meaning. That ninth one gets mixed up. Oh yeah, that's the one our culture really wants to screw you up with. They don't... They want you to think your need for meaning gets met by the bigger car you drive. So they get the strategy all mixed up with the more money you earn. Yes, if you want to read a, a book that I find very powerful on how our culture systematically screws up our minds to mix up this important need for meaning with what the consumer culture wants us to want, read Michael Lerner's book. His name is L-E-R-N-E-R. -E -E Michael Lerner, the book is called Spirit Matters. In English? In English, yeah. And it's all about how our culture systematically miseducates us to mix up needs and strategies. What was the title again? Spirit Matters. That's why such an important part of nonviolent communication is to help people not get needs mixed up with strategies for meeting the needs. Because, now see, it's pretty hard to keep this separate. For example, if you live in the United States 
and you have ever watched television for more than 10 minutes, you'll think you have a need for a McDonald's hamburger. You can't imagine a person surviving on our planet without a McDonald's hamburger daily. So, and how can you think that from the time you're a child, you see this cleverly presented advertisements two or three times in a 15-minute program. And it's presented in a way to get the child to nag the parents to take them to McDonald's. So if you get that, So uh, our brains get warped very quickly by the uh, corporate world that want us to get our needs all mixed up with our strategies for getting the needs mixed up, getting the needs met. So uh, to develop your vocabulary, what I did, which helps me a lot, I went through that list of nine and my words for capturing those nine are not the same that Manfred Max Neef uses, so I, I translated them into my language that I would just use with myself for those nine things. What, what resonates for me with those nine needs? And then I said, now, how can I express those needs when I'm talking to a three-year-old? So I, trans I figured out how I might, because... See, all human beings have the same needs. That's important to be conscious of. So, every human being. So, the three-year-old has a need for autonomy, but I doubt that many three-year-olds would use that word. So, how do I get this need across to a three-year-old that I'm talking with? Uh, when I work with street gangs, how would I express these nine needs? When I work with college professors, if ever we need to be literate at how to express something, it would be how to express those those nine needs. And how to hear them behind whatever language the other person uses. Because the, the more important a need is to many people, the best they know how to express the need is this way. The problem with you is so a lot of needs are expressed that way, especially the needs that the person is the most desperate about. So uh, I also then did an exercise. I took the most aggravating messages coming my way from other people and then practiced guessing at what need was might be behind that. What is that person's need? So I worked very hard to be able to see anything that used to sound like a criticism. It's really an, a poor expression of an unmet need. So anytime something sounds like criticism, I know it's chance to practice translating judgments into needs. Anytime I want to make a criticism, time to translate the criticism into my unmet need. Any other comments or questions you have about that. Yeah. I have a question. Because I wonder if uh, a three-year-old has the same um, I wonder if the need for love is no. <laughs> a three-year-old has 
a need for being confirmed or seen or and the way in your old asked asks to be seen is maybe an indirect way as as um, saying I don't want to go to bed um, well, if a child says, I don't want to go to bed, if they said it with that tone, I would guess the need is autonomy. Because you see, if the parent has single-mindedness of purpose to get them to bed, of course, then you cannot use nonviolent communication. You can never use nonviolent communication if you have single-mindedness of purpose. See, we can only use nonviolent communication when our objective is to create a connection that allows everybody's needs to get met through compassionate giving and receiving. So, If it's my objective to get what I need, I was sitting next to an airport, in an airport in Dallas, Texas, to a woman who had a three-year-old sitting next to her. And uh, this child, I was just sitting there for about 20 minutes, didn't move, about three years old, just sitting there. Finally, an elderly woman sitting near the woman said, I've never seen such a well-mannered child just sitting there. And the mother said, yes, I've learned the secret to parenting. Make sure you have a cracker. She had a box of crackers. And a smacker. She had a ping-pong pack. So when the child sat as she wanted, she'd give him a cracker. But if he got up, smack him. So that's how most teachers and parents are educated, you know. Cracker and a smacker. So if your objective is to get somebody to do what you want, don't study nonviolent communication. Go to a dog obedience school. A dog obedience school and see how they train dogs. If you reward and punish. Yeah. So how would you make sure that the three-year-old get enough sleep? You know, this... <laughs> this... This uh, was a question that I solved for myself doing a workshop in the United States with uh, physicians who were in charge of health care at universities. And I was doing a workshop with them. And at that time, one of my evening, we, every evening we had the bedtime war at the Rosenberg household, you know, trying to get a three, four, and seven-year-old into bed on time, you know, for their health. And what really helped me, having lunch with one of the physicians, the physician said to me, do you know what one of our biggest health problems is at the university, Marshall? I said, no, what? It's 18-year-olds coming away to the university after having 18 years with parents who tell them what time to go to bed at night. They literally don't listen to their bodies and they don't know what time to go to sleep and they stay up all night and and about the second month of the semester, we just have a whole bunch of sick people. I said, you just helped me solve the bedtime problem at the Rosenberg house. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I said, I thought I was getting them to bed every night for their health. And now you just helped me realize I never told my dog what time to go to sleep. <laughs> the dog didn't get sick, so... Are my children less intelligent than the dog, you know? So, 
So I went home and had the following dialogue with them. Really, it's a true story. I said to them, look, uh, I think that uh, I haven't been clear about why I want you to go to bed at night. Does anybody know? And told them over and over, but it hadn't sunk in. And I said again, I care about your health, you know, and that's why I want you to get sleep. Is that clear? Then my son, my older son, said, but Dad, sometimes we're not tired then. Well, that made sense to me. I'd hate to have somebody tell me, even if they cared about my health, you know, if I didn't want to sleep. I'd... So I said, how can we solve this, you know? And then I also realized something else when the doctor told me that got all mixed up in this. I would say my concern with it for their health was about 50%. <laughs> and 50% was for my mental health. <laughs> you know, at a certain time of the evening, I just wanted uh, some relaxation and peace and so forth. So I said, well, you know, I'm not only concerned about your well-being, but, you know, do you know what I mean by just liking time to yourself and they understood. They have that same need. So I said, how can we get everybody's needs met? And then my daughter came up with it. She had a great solution. She said, Daddy, how, come, how about if we go into our room at 8 o'clock? Then you can have time. But then we can go to sleep when we want. I said, let's try. It worked beautifully. It worked beautifully. Uh, the only problem was, the first night, my youngest son, age three, uh, I heard him up until 10 o'clock playing in his room. And uh, oh, I had to control myself not to go in there. And then the next morning he got up real grumpy. And then I had to hold my tongue so I didn't say, see, I told you if you don't get in there. And really, he got it. He got it. I think one other time he, he, he didn't get enough sleep and then everybody got their needs. He found his own rhythm and I got my needs met, they got their needs met. So does this answer that? Yeah, but I'm just curious about that there's a certain age where you can't have that dialogue. It's about that the, the child is capable of taking some, what, some responsibility of his own. Sometimes when they're not able to, like we lived on a busy street and I didn't want them to take responsibility for how and when to go across the street. So one day I'm out mowing the lawn and my three-year-old starts running across the street. And I go and grab him and I tried to explain to him the danger of that. So sometimes we need to use the protective use of force. Never the punitive use of force. Never punishment. So I said to him, if I see you running the street again, I'm so afraid of you getting hurt, I'll put you in the yard now, the yard had a fence around it that he couldn't open. Now, this was not a prison. It had a slide in it. It was a very nice place, but it was a protective use of force. So if I feel the person doesn't have whatever the, the, the understanding that it takes to really make a life-serving choice, I may use a protective use of force until they get it. Help us. Watching, they want to watch more TV. If they want to what? Watch more TV. If they want to watch more TV. Uh, I'm both glad and sad that I didn't have the consciousness about TV 
when my children were younger, because I would not have had a TV then uh, if I had seen uh, the dangers of TV, what it does to the consciousness of people, and so on. So you're saying, what if they want to watch more TV? Uh, first, I would really try to explain uh, what programs I'm concerned about and why, and see if we could get some agreements at least on which ones, and then the amount. And here I might be, here might be a time when I would be uh, sufficiently concerned about the effects that television has, because television is a, a, a very dangerous narcotic, even for adults. You know. We have in the United States a disease, a rampant disease, called couch potato. <laughs> Do you know what a couch potato is? I have one at home. <laughs> Do you know how many hours a week the average um, uh, adult watches television in the United States? Three hours. That was a frightening amount. Do you remember what it was? You mean throughout their life? No, no, just during a week, per week. 40, I think. It was, uh, I, I, I'll look it up tonight. It was, I couldn't believe it. About nine years of the average American's life is used up watching television. Uh, yeah, they turn it on at, uh, when they get home at six, right after dinner, and then watch it until 11. So it's about five a night and uh, seven times five, about 35 hours a week. The housewives a little more. Uh, and what they're watching during that time it, uh, is designed to turn your brain into uh, something else beside a brain. So uh, it's a dangerous, dangerous narcotic. So I would really uh, want to try to communicate this to the children as best I could. But I'm so concerned about it now, I'd probably use protective use of force. I would have some technical friend of mine designed to have the set go off every night at a certain time. Not to punish them, but just to protect against having their brains uh, turned into a couch potato. I have another uh, question. Uh, I noticed when we were doing the exercise that uh, when it went into the forgiveness, Parts of myself were forgiven, and then other parts of myself go back into the guilt. And I see a cycle. I know that that's something that I do quite a bit in my life, this cycle where, okay, I can forgive myself one moment, the next moment goes back into the guilt. Then you probably haven't empathized enough, you haven't mourned well. See, you just keep having the guilt, I shouldn't do it. But if you hear the need behind that, that's mourning. It's no longer, you won't feel guilt. You, you cannot feel depression, anger, guilt, or shame when you're connected to life. Or in my definition, being connected to life means when you're in touch with your needs. 
So I've asked many very depressed people who are very good for building up your income if you're in private practice, because 41% of pharmaceutical sales in the United States are for antidepressant medicine. So 41% of pharmaceutical sales are for antidepressant medicine. So now, does this mean we have a disease called depression that's rampant? Or are we systematically educating people in a way that makes it inevitable that almost everybody will be depressed? And the people who end up getting called bipolar, just they're, they're better at being depressed than the others. So I would ask this question of people when they would come in to see me for depression. I'd say, can you tell me what needs of yours aren't getting met to your satisfaction? I'm a failure. Really, this would be exactly the kind of answer I usually get. I'm a poor mother. You know, I've been working, you know, I'm, my brother is this and I'm just this. I'd ask for needs, but they're not in touch with needs. You go up and think there is, if you want to be depressed, be a man and think there's such a thing as a competent man. You want to be depressed, be a woman and think there's such a thing as an attractive woman. All it takes to be really depressed. But if you really like to be depressed, not just semi-depressed, <laughs> not only think of what is wrong with you, but compare yourself to others. And if you don't know how to do that, get a hold of a book called How to Make Yourself Miserable by Dan Greenberg. Now, this book really produces. You, you think you can get yourself depressed. But boy, if you read this book, you can really get depressed. For example, one of the exercises in the book, one of the chapters, is how to compare yourself to others. And in this chapter, the first thing you see as you turn to it is a picture of a man and a woman by contemporary standards who would be judged as quite attractive. Now they're without clothes and they have all of their measurements on the picture. The exercise is this. Take your measurements, <laughs> compare them to these attractive people and think about the difference. <laughs> Now, you know, some books uh, promise that they don't produce. Now, you do this exercise, and uh, it produces. You'll be about as depressed as you think you can get until you turn the page. Now, when you turn the page, the author says, now, this was just a warm-up, <laughs> because we all know that beauty isn't that important. Now, let's compare ourselves to other people on things that are important, such as achievement. So to help you in this exercise, the author claims to do this. He said, I have called people at random from the phone book and asked them what they have achieved in their lives, uh, at what age they are, and now you can compare yourself to these people. <laughs> now here's where I'm not sure I trust the author of this book because the first person he claims to have called at random from the phone book was Mozart. <laughs> but there were some interesting facts about Mozart I never knew, like how many languages he could speak by age eight, I forget the number, and uh, how many 
pieces of music he subsequently wrote that have been handed down over the centuries as masterpieces. Now, compare what you've achieved at your stage in life with what Mozart did by age eight. <laughs> and think about the difference, you see. <laughs> so, you know, and you'll get this kind of indoctrination moment by moment watching the television, of course, because this, this is showing you what the, the normal, appropriate, attractive, competent, successful human being is doing, what they have, what they own. See, that's why I make sure I always have long sleeves, because I don't want people to see I don't have a Rolex. <laughs> I feel ashamed about that. You see. So, any other question about that exercise? About yeah. I had a question on the need. I was wondering whether the need for reciprocity or mutuality was could be labeled as a need. Uh, I've got an example, like in a couple, if I'm opening up or doing this or, or working on myself to find my the responsibility for my actions. I am kind of expecting my partner to do so. If I talk about a need for reciprocity, is that... I would say the very fact that you have an expectation makes it not a need. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's what I, I had the kind of... Yeah, so what's the need behind? I'm guessing that uh, the caring, need for caring, to feel, to feel cared for. Isn't that closer to it? Is just that you want him to do it because you do it? Or now, some things I think we do have a need for fairness. That yeah. need. But see, now here's where language comes in again. Like, if I say to another person, I have a need for fairness, they're very, very likely to hear I'm calling them unfair. Because that implies I might think there's such a thing as fair and unfair. So to really find a vocabulary that really captures the need without being easily heard as a criticism, it's, it keeps, I keep working at it. But as I said earlier, most of the time I use a street giraffe. I don't use classical giraffe. I think that if I use certain language, people can kind of sense what the need is. And it's more what they are comfortable hearing than if I put it into a more classical form. We'll work on that as we work on how to be honest and how to be honest both in a street way, just and you know, idiomatic way, and how to at times be more formal about it. See, we were all speaking perfect giraffe, perfect nonviolent communication for about the first several months of our life. Really, like when you were nine months old, and uh, your need for hunger wasn't being met in the middle of the night. You didn't uh, wake up and say to your parents, parents, how could you be so insensitive? I haven't eaten in four hours. Get your lazy butt out of the bed and feed me. <laughs> how did you communicate? <laughs> Street giraffe, see? <laughs> your parents could sense what you were feeling and needing it. You didn't learn that violent language until you were educated. But 
Well, you see, nonviolent communication is just a natural language. We're trying to communicate to other people the best way we can what needs of ours are met and aren't being met. Okay, let's continue with this uh, transforming the language. And now let's get angry. Let's get real angry. And for those of you who are so nice that you never get angry, uh, so that you can participate in this exercise, I will give you my brother's telephone number. And if you go and call him, you'll be angry within 10 minutes. And come on back, and you can be. What does he do? The last time I actually, he's a very nice guy. Uh, the last time I saw, one of the last times I saw him, I said, "How do you? How does it feel for you to be famous all over the world?" He said, "Huh? What do you mean?" And I told him how I make mention of him in every workshop, and he was very disappointed. Nobody has ever called him. You know? <laughs> Everybody has somebody that triggers off their anger. Okay. So you got this person in mind. Somebody who really can stimulate your anger. Now, anger is a very precious feeling. For me, it is a very precious feeling. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, it's one of those four feelings that tell me that my needs aren't getting met, and I'm thinking in a way almost guaranteed not to get my needs met. So when somebody is stimulating some anger in me, boy, this is a precious feeling to have that anger, because it's a good chance for me to practice the exercise we did this morning. Because I know when I'm angry, I'm not connected to life. I know that I'm thinking in a way that's perpetuating violence on the planet. So in a sense, when I transform my anger, I'm engaging in a social change action. I'm doing something that will have some effect on changing the world situation, because at least in this little way, I'll be transforming one person's thinking so that I'm not in harmony with that violence going on in the world. So that's why I like anger. And uh, being educated in the way that I was, I've spent a good deal of my life being angry, which means it gives me plenty of chance to practice this exercise. So the most important start of anger is not to mix up three things, to keep them real separate. Stip the stimulus for our anger, number one. The stimulus for our anger. The cause and the root. Stimulus, cause, and root. So let's begin with the stimulus. Write down what the other person did. That stimulated your anger. Now, of course, now that you all have studied nonviolent communication, you know how important it is 
never to mix up the stimulus and the cause. See, we never, never, never want to think that what other people do can make us angry. Nothing other people do can make us angry. Anybody doesn't believe that, all they have to do is meet a friend of mine that uh, Valentina and I saw recently, a woman from uh, Rwanda. Uh, when they came to kill everybody in her family, the family all had uh, plans where to hide, so she quickly got under the kitchen sink. But her three children, her brother and her husband, didn't get to their places fast. And so while she was under the sink, she heard them all being killed. Her three children, her husband, and her brother. Now, I know this woman very well. And I know she's never been angry at the people who did it. See, so even something like that, somebody killing your family, can't make you angry. She has deep, deep, deep feelings about it. But those feelings lead her to behave in quite a different way than she would behave if she was angry. Because if she was angry, she'd probably want to punish them for what they did. So her energy has gone into doing everything she could not to punish the bad people, but to preventing this ever happening to people again. And the best way she has figured out to this point is to write. So she has written a book called Le Mort Ne Vous Pas De Moi. Death didn't want me. And she's engaged in several other actions uh, designed to prevent this ever happening to anybody again. So not even somebody killing your children can make you angry. So everybody, you've got your stimulus, that first thing there. You don't have any cause in there. The cause, you see, is always the same. The cause of anger is because we think. We think the way that people have to be taught to think to live under dictatorships. You have to be taught in ways to think that are life-alienating and violence-provocative. Got that? See, the two characteristics of how you must educate people to think to maintain authoritarian control you must program people's brains with thinking that is life-alienated. That means disconnected from needs. Needs are life. So you don't want people, if you want to get people to be nice, dead people, doing what the czar, the king, the president, the teacher, the parent says, you have to teach them a life-alienated language that is disconnected from needs. And that is violence provocative. The Christian theologian Walter Wink points out in his writings that we have been systematically educated in a way that makes violence enjoyable. In the United States, 70% of the programs that children are watching in the evening, 70% the hero either kills somebody or beats them up. And when does this occur? It occurs during the climax. 
Yes, it's what everybody's waiting for. So by the average person in the United States, by the time they're 15 years old, they've watched thousands of acts of violence, most of which are committed by the heroes. Always for good reasons, to serve God and serve the country. And the oil. And what? And the oil. And the oil. <laughs> no, that's an honest jackal. They don't. No, 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 no. Serve God and serve the country. So, and to do that, you must teach them a language that makes violence enjoyable. And that's where that word that I told you about earlier comes in. To make violence enjoyable, teach people that if people do this, they deserve to suffer. When I used to live in Texas, only you will believe this, Jim. Everybody else is going to be thinking I'm making up a horror movie. But when I used to live in Texas, which kills about, I think, more prisoners than any other state, when a prisoner was to be killed, college students church-going, nice college student would gather by the hundreds sometimes outside the prison the evening that the prisoner was to be executed to have a tailgate drinking party. Tailgate means you put your booze in the back of a SUV and, or a station wagon and you have a big drinking party where everybody is waiting on the magic moment of the evening when over the loudspeaker comes the announcement, the prisoner has been executed. And then there's loud cheering. And We educate people systematically to make violence enjoyable. We teach them to get what they deserve. There's whole cultures that do not have punishment. They can't even imagine it. Because they don't have life-alienated, violence-provocative thinking. I worked uh, with the Orang Asli people in uh, Malaysia. And I was amazed when my interpreter, before the day started, said, you know, Marshall, if you judge any person's actions using the verb to be, if you judge their actions that way, it will make interpreting very difficult for me because we don't have that language in our language. We never think of what a person is or what their behavior is. And I said, huh? How can I go through a day without insulting people? I mean, my, my brain has been programmed. I said, for example, but, uh, how will you interpret if I say to somebody, you're selfish? Oh, boy, Marshall, you said, that'll be very hard. If you said you're selfish, hmm. In our language, I would translate it this way. Marshall sees you taking care of your needs, but not the needs of others. He'd like you to take care of the needs of others as well. And I thought to myself, pure nonviolent communication. What the hell am I here doing <laughs> teaching these people their native language? You know, Well, I, actually, I wasn't there to teach them nonviolent communication. There one senator for the 60,000 of them in Malaysia. He asked me if I would work with his people 
to teach them how to speak with people who speak this other language, the language that the logging interests were using, that were coming down and destroying their habitat. They were using a language like, you people are, you know, trespassers. You people are this. You people are that. We own this now. We pay for it. So they didn't know how to speak with people who spoke that language. So uh, he wanted me to show them how to speak with people who speak this other language. Read Ruth Benedict's research. She's an anthropologist, and she found countries all over the world that speak like that. That have hardly any violence. They don't know what punishment means. It doesn't make any sense to them. Why would any person want to hurt another person? That only makes sense if you believe they deserve it. And why do they deserve it? Because they're selfish, because they're this, because they're that. Okay, so you got the stimulus down. Let me hear about two or three of these stimuli. What did this person do to stimulate your anger? And the person doesn't answer verbally. Okay. Verbally, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that answered. Okay, what other stimulus? My daughter saying to me, you must. Your daughter sometimes uses the word must and says, you must. Mm -hmm. Pardon? A lie is a diagnosis. That's not an observable behavior. For example, one night I saw my son go in my daughter's room and take some money off of her dresser. And he came out in the hall and I said, Brett, did you ask Marla if you could take that money? He said, I didn't take any money. See, that's an observation. I, I saw that. I said that, and he said, I didn't take any money. Now, was he lying, or was I drunk and hallucinating? <laughs> so, what would be an observation is not that he lied, but I saw him take the money, I asked him this, he said this. Those are observations. Whether he's lying, or maybe he's brain damaged, maybe he forgot. Or maybe from his point of view, he wouldn't say, I wasn't lying so much as protecting myself. So, watch the verbs. The verbs often confuse observation and evaluation. Got another one. Blaming. No, no, blaming is a diagnosis. If I if we've done our if we do our job here in this training, you will never hear blame again. With giraffe ears on, you cannot hear blame or criticism, or no. Not possible. No. So what did the person say? What were the exact words? We need to have a direct quote. What did this person say? That before you had giraffe ears, you heard as blame. You did something wrong. Person said, You did something wrong. That's what they said. But now, if I have giraffe ears on, I don't hear blame. Here's what I hear the person saying to me 
Anytime I hear blame, I put on giraffe ears. And here's what I hear. This is what the person is singing every time we hear criticism, blame. See me beautiful. Look for the best in me. That's what I really am. And all I want to be. It may take some time. It may be hard to find, but see me beautiful. See me beautiful each and every day. Could you take a chance? Could you find a way to see me shining through? everything I do and see me beautiful when people need us to hear them singing that song the most is when it's the hardest to hear that song that was written by a guy named Red Grammar G-R-A-M-M-E-R. Any of you teaching young kids might want to get a hold of his music because uh, uh, he writes this music for children. That's one of the songs in one of his albums. Okay, you got the stimulus down now. What you said to yourself. It, uh, and... That, that what the other person did, rather, is the stimulus. And now let's write down the cause of your anger, what you tell yourself. Cause of our anger is always thinking, our thinking. Life alienated, violence provocative thinking. It not only implies a wrongness, but implicit in this wrongness is the person deserves to suffer for. That is the cause of anger. And the root, I hope by now everybody is conscious, is an unmet need. So all of the thinking that creates anger, as I've said already today, is a tragic, tragic, tragic expression of an unmet need. So anger is very helpful to me. When I get angry, I... Look for the thinking that causes it and translate that thinking into what need of mine isn't getting met. And I'll know that I've connected to the need because the anger will now be replaced by other feelings. You cannot be angry when you're connected to life. I might be frustrated. I might be irritated. I might be discouraged. I might be sad. I can have fright behind a lot of anger. Behind it is fear. So I can have a lot of strong feelings when I get connected to the need, but never, never, never anger. Now, of course, the worst thing you can do when you get angry is to think you shouldn't be angry. 
try to be a nice person and then just push the anger down. Did you ever hear what the next door neighbors usually say about serial killers? How they describe them when they're interviewed? Pardon? Oh, what nice person he was. What a nice person. I never could have imagined killing all those people. Yeah. That's about the most frightening thing is to be a nice person. We don't want to be a nice person. So we don't want to push the anger down. And when we see the thinking that's the cause of the anger, we also don't want to think we shouldn't think that way. We don't want to repress the thinking. We don't want to think, I shouldn't think that way. What's wrong with me for thinking that way? No, 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 no. We just want to see the thinking. Just see it. Not think there's anything wrong with it. It's just how we were programmed. We think the way we do that causes anger because we were educated to think that way. And then we make the transformation. We transform the thinking into an unmet need. So, after lunch, we will uh, now see how what we do with this anger in relationship to the other person, how we deal with that. So, any other questions before we break? Earlier you spoke in, and you made reference, I think, yesterday as well, to um, spiritual violence. And so people were kind of indoctrinated into some kind of spiritual violence. Did you unpack that? So, how to deal with people who are. No, no, you, you just made reference a couple of times. I've heard that you were saying some people were in some kind of spiritual bondage or something like that, that they were tied to some old way of thinking. Well, uh, 80%, here, let me first quote some research by Milton Rokich, R-O-K-E-A-C-H. Milton Rokich uh, was a research psychologist at uh, Michigan State University. And in his book, The Open and Closed Mind, he cites research that he did. And his research, he took samples of people from the eight most populated re religions, you know, Hindus, Christians, Jews, whoever, eight of the most followed religions, and people who really seriously practice it by their understanding. And then he gave these people various measures of compassion to see how compassionate they and the first thing he found that one religion was not more compassionate than the others. In fact, they were remarkably about all the same. Then he took a group of people that had no religion. They didn't follow any religion. Gave them the same test of compassion. They were far more compassionate than the religious group. But... Rokich warns the reader of his book called The Open and Closed Mind. He said, be careful how you interpret this, because within each of the religions, there was a bimodal distribution, meaning that there were two radically different ways in which people within each religion 
understood the religion. A majority, 80%, their idea of the religion was that there's this thing called God that judges people, right, wrong, good, bad, punishes and rewards. This, you have this view. And then if you're good, you get rewarded, and you're bad, you get punished. In each of the religions, the majority, about 80%, had that basic understanding of what the religion was about. 20% had a radically different consciousness of this energy that we call the spiritual energy, God, whatever you call it, that it was compassionate. It was all about compassionate giving. If you took this 20% and separated them from the 80%, they were far more compassionate than the non-church-going people. So uh, you can't say because a person is Jewish or Christian or Muslim uh, you know, whether, they're, whether they're more compassionate or not. What is their understanding of the, of the religion? the uh, people in each of those religions that I work with in these different countries, it's usually the 20% that invite me in. They can't imagine how anybody can kill in the name of their religion. It just pains them to think that some people interpret it that way. So. Yeah? Yeah, I have a question. In, for, in theories that contribute to violence on the planet, you didn't mention fear. Why is that? Well, I think fear is a rather natural feeling. If any time you're in danger, I would hope we feel fear. Okay, so that's also... So there's anger, depression, guilt, shame, and fear. No, I, I wouldn't put fear in that. I'm yeah. saying fear to me is a very natural reaction. I, I want to be scared so I don't run out in the street in front of cars. I want to be frightened of what could happen. But... Uh, so I differentiate between natural fears or natural feelings which are directly connected to needs not being met or being met, and the other kind coming about by how our brains have been programmed. So these four, uh, four feelings are the feelings that we have to work on? The f we have to work on the thinking that causes them. Let's not think that the feelings are the problem. I'm, I'm saying they're valuable to me. They wake me up. I use those four feelings as an alarm clock to wake me up that at that moment I'm not living in the world I choose to live in. Yeah? What's the difference? Sorry. The question um, Thomas said um, and they're fighting for oil or something and before that we had like, uh, God in the country and he said something like oh, the, the real jackal. Honest Jacob. Honest Jacob. And um, my question is, um, when I'm when um, there's no anger, it's a, so it's okay. Um, sometimes for humor or so, um, using Jacob. Uh, you know. It's okay to use Jacko in a humorous way. No, I don't understand why. Okay, I have my question. Why did you say okay? This is an honest Jacob. 
Oh, because uh, I think a lot of the people who claim to be serving God, I think if they're really honest, they're really wanting to get some money. And I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying some of them are serving God, thinking that these other people are evil. But uh, much of the thinking that I think is being expressed in the United States by the people who are supported by the evangelists and uh, using this 80% consciousness of the religion. Uh, my projection is they're really doing this for money. The difference between guilt and shame, uh, that's thinking of that, because uh, uh, I have the experience of guilt is you, there is something you can do, but shame is just judgment. Well, for me, shame comes about not so much by thinking that I'm a bad person. Shame comes from that, that kind of thinking that I'm a bad person. But guilt, let me show you how to induce guilt. You see, it's a little different. Let's say you're one of my children, and I want to make you feel guilty for not cleaning up your room. I want you to feel shame. I would say something like, you're a, you're, you're a lazy, you're a this and that. But that is usually more likely to stimulate shame. But if I want to use guilt, in some respects, it's a much more vicious way. The first thing to use guilt, you have to learn how to look pathetic. So you put yourself where the child can see you. And the child who hasn't cleaned up the room sees me sitting there like this. What's the matter, Dad? Nothing. <laughs> Come on, Dad, what's the matter? It hurts me when you don't clean up your room. <laughs> now, if somebody who loves you sees you in pain and they think they caused your pain, you see, it's, uh, it's more a guilt kind of feeling that they feel. So it only works with people who care for you. With the others, you have to use shame. But if they care for you, be even more violent. Use guilt. Can I just ask something about, about this uh, subject? Uh, I still uh, find it hard to see the difference between um, trying to provoke guilt, uh, guilty feelings in somebody and uh, not wanting to, uh, uh, to evoke uh, these feelings in somebody, but still being... You know, be feeling really sad, really desperate about something that, for example, has happened in the relationship, and you're just really in deep pain, and you don't, you're not, you're not doing this in order to make the other person yeah. feel guilty, but but you're just so there's so much pain, you just stop crying. Yeah, I'm crying. I'm in pain. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Here, here, take this aspirin. Maybe you'll feel better. Here, blah, 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 blah. see the jackal right away wants to even though I've not said that they're the cause of it. Once they see me in this pain, they have to fix it, they have to fix it. They don't realize that when you try to fix it, you make it worse. Mm -hmm. So what can you do in such a situation when you're the person experiencing the pain and you don't... Jackal, jackal, jackal. Would you really want to do something that would be very valuable to me now? Yeah, what? I want you to enjoy my pain. <laughs> huh? <laughs> so we'll deal with this more when we, we get... We got to teach jackals to enjoy our pain. <laughs>